previously on Untangled Faith. We're talking about grief. You know, I just want this, of all things, our discussion, to be able to give some permission. Grief, I'm learning, doesn't fit into neat categories. It starts and stops on its own timeline and doesn't play by the rules I would love to impose upon it. Your grief process is going to be your grief process. He was already telling himself the story to make sense of it and make it somehow okay. But lament is a prophetic declaration of the goodness and righteousness of God and that what is in front of us does not match with that. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. Author and therapist Connie Baker has a few more things to share with us about what she calls the grief mosaic. What's a sign that I should put it back in the cupboard? Uh, if you're struggling to function, that's one of the main things. It, you know, if I see people who are losing work, and not maintaining their daily hygiene, you know, yeah. if you're not functioning, get some help. Get, some, get it with a good mental health person who can help you say, all right, how can we put this in the cupboard? I always say, unless your brain feels really tortured or if you're not functioning, then I'm just going to try to help you along. I'm not going to necessarily talk about medication or even putting it in the cupboard. Okay. But if if something, you know, if, if you're struggling at that level, then you need to get some help. I've needed help multiple times with that in my life. So, so when it comes to the different categories of grief, is there one particular one where people would get tend to get more stuck on for longer or more regularly or or not? Yeah, I love that question. I think there again, I think this is very personality and temperament driven about how, what is my brain wiring like? I may go through depression and just go through it, feel it and move on and go through that fine. Or, but I might really get stuck in anger or avoid it. And it comes out sideways or one of those things. The other thing I would say about this is still confession. There's sometimes it's kind of fun to annoy my clients. And so they'll go... (laughs) I'm so stuck. Oh my gosh, I'm stuck. And I'll say, oh, okay, well, let's talk about that. We don't want you to be stuck. So are you in exactly the same place you were six months ago? Oh, well, no. Oh, so what makes you stuck? I don't want to be here this long. Oh, that's really what we're talking about. And so I think it's good for both people going through it, as well as observing people to go through it, Mm. to not put a stuck label on it too soon. And let me tell you, if I stall for a fraction of a second, I'm like, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. <laughs> and it's like, no, you're not. Some other slower moving temperaments, when they say they're stuck, I listen a little bit more. But for those of us who are type A, hard driving, I mean, I've been here for three weeks and I'm like, mm-hmm. that's called impatience. Not stuck, <laughs> you know? And I get it. I totally yeah. get it. But to relabel and just as a little side note, but people around us feel anxiety. Okay, if I'm suffering really deeply, my friends around me feel anxiety watching that. Their tendency is going to be, and I got some really healthy friends, so they don't do this hardly at all, but they'll say they want to from time to time. Like they want to rescue me, they want to get the pain stopped, they want me to move on, they want me to feel better. 
well, that's a sweet friend. The issue gets in there when we start labeling and saying, oh, I think you're stuck in anger because they've been mad for a few weeks. You needed to feel this to kind of play with that word stuck a little bit, I think is also helpful. Can we truly get stuck any part of the grief process? Absolutely. We totally can. I just say, be careful to put the label on it. Yeah. Don't put it on there so quickly. That's going back to your question about impatience. Let's just be done with this. Let's just move through it. I have clients ask me, and I love this question. How fast can I get through this? I'm like, boy, (laughs) soul sister, soul brother here. How fast can we get it, get this done? Yes. You know, there's no great answer for that. So. Yes, I have heard some people that they hack their emotions by like, we're going to watch a movie right now. It's an emotional movie. This is how I'm going to do it. Totally. I'm going to cry with the movie. Let your body take care of it if you have to <laughs> that way. Cry cry through the movie. Because it's contained in some way. I mean, it probably feels a little safer to do it that yeah. way for some people than... Oh, it's very much safer. Yeah. Absolutely. And I still think it does them a bit of good. Sometimes I think we need to develop a sense of self-efficacy, a sense that I can actually hurt really bad and make mm. it through. Because yeah. a lot of times from childhood, there's been a, a part of us that says, you cannot afford to hurt really bad. It will kill you. Yeah. It will destroy or you. Or somebody around you. Exactly. Yourself or usually that's tied. If that person around me is destroyed, then I'll be destroyed. Yeah. And so if it's that survival thing. And a lot of times what I help my clients with is to say, look what you just went through and you made it. And then they can stop watching movies, somebody else's story to cry about, and maybe look a little bit more at their own and say, I can grieve a little bit at a time. They're getting gently to say, yeah. it's part of the story. I can grieve for me now. And the more we do that, the more we trust our ability to stay buoyant and to not be yeah. destroyed by our emotions. Due to the nature of this podcast, I have the privilege of being invited into people's lives. They share parts of their stories with me that they haven't shared with very many people and maybe no one before. Sometimes they do it in an email or in an Instagram or Twitter message. And sometimes it's with a Zoom link or Zencaster at our own computers with headphones and microphones. I do my best to not share accounts that aren't mine to tell, and I won't share a story if the person who owns that story isn't in a healthy place to share it. Even so, being ready to share like this on a platform like this is a vulnerable thing. I'm sharing this today because I want to remind you that the voices you hear aren't just case studies. They're real people. I wish grief was neat enough that we could all see clear progression from one stage to the next. We could check off the box for denial and then move on to anger. I mean, I I do have anger written on my calendar for February 23rd and bargaining penciled in for March 2nd. But like Connie said last week, it's a mosaic. These emotions can happen together. And today's episode will be like that. Officially, we're talking about anger, but we're always going to be getting a little bit of everything. Kat mentioned last week that there had been a pattern of interactions between her husband and the lead pastor that were really harmful for her husband, Colby. And this week, she fills in some of the blanks about that time. And I do think that later, as things progressed, I was feeling more angry more often. Um, Tell me about that progression. Like what happened? What kept happening? The one moment my husband remembers seeing me angry was when he came home and he he hadn't told me this before, but it was in another event where something else was coming up and it was sort of like, right? Like here's everything. Like where essentially this, the lead pastor had sat my husband down and this was almost a weekly occurrence. You could tell he wasn't happy with you. You felt like he was always watching you and once every week or two weeks, he'd sit you down behind a closed door and just 
not yell, but chew you out in a very harsh, really intense way. So my husband Colby told me, yeah, this guy sat me down and he said, Hey, I've been really wrestling with this. I've lost sleep over it. I've talked to my wife and I'm like trying to figure out, you know, if I should talk to you about it, but I'm going to, and it's that your parenting is weighing on me. Oh, that's so personal. (sighs) Yeah. And what I remember as being part of what made me so angry was because Well, number one, that is not the way you go to a brother if you have valid concerns. Yeah. My husband's natural response was to shut down. And then came the, well, you have to be able to take this from me, Colby, because it's in love. You have to be able to take it. And my husband will admit that he he finds himself to be a very slow processor. He has to process things internally for a long time. So he would kind of shut down and sometimes kind of look compliant. And then he'd go back home. And then a couple of days later, he'd go back to this guy and say, hey, that wasn't okay. And so we found out later that the narrative that they ascribed to that was that Colby would be okay and repentant and open. And then he'd go home and talk to his wife and then come back and it was different. Uh, So even like his way of processing information and his trauma response in the moment of kind of submitting, right? Freezing sometimes ended up being uh, blamed as sinful or... At what point did you realize that they were kind of putting some of that on you? Not until the very end. Okay. In the end, my theory, and I'm this is purely my perspective, is that my husband Mm -hmm. is so kind and servant hearted and tender and caring that he's almost impossible to villainize. I was an easy scapegoat. Um, You had a stronger personality. Yes. More outspoken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Then the other part of it that made me so angry was because in finding out more about that incident, then because Colby wasn't able to hear him, quote, right. Colby wasn't able to hear him in that Colby's response was to shut down. And this was a kind of a, a replay repeat thing that would happen often is that Colby would appear to not be able to take it well. Mm-hmm. And then he would say, well, I need to pull the other elders into this because you're not able to hear me. He'd bring their only two lay elders at the very end. Um, there was one other one that was involved in some of the early conflict, but he rolled off. The perspective was Colby and he would go straight to, right? Like with the yelling at Colby about the sermon, he'd say, this is happening. Therefore I can't trust you. With the parenting, it was well, part of the qualification for an elder is that you're able to manage your household. The elders, when there were a few more, there were four more, I think, they all went around and were like affirming of Colby. No, we don't, we, we think you're seeing this wrong. Like we see Colby to be a really wonderful father and he takes feedback. And because that was the issue too, is this guy would say, You can't take feedback, but I'm the only one that's, that loves you enough to say this stuff to you. Mm. When what he didn't know and had no curiosity about, was in times when parenting had been particularly hard, we were reading books and reading articles and crying and seeking out wisdom from friends and people we trusted. You know, like we were so open to that because we felt desperate sometimes. The other ironic thing is that because we hadn't, the the friendship had kind of distanced since we moved there is we very rarely hung out with them as a family. So it was also kind of like, well, you've been over to our house for dinner twice in two years. What are you seeing that, you know? And so all the elders go around and say, no, no, we think Colby is a wonderful dad and this isn't an issue at all. And then he said, well, you guys don't know Colby like I know him. Oh man. 
And that to me was just so infuriating because, well, not only does he just not know, because that's part of the being misunderstood is all these times we were called unrepentant. All that mattered to us was doing the right thing. The only thing that mattered to us was being faithful. We didn't want to be right. Right. Unless we were following God and that that was what, you know, that led to. But yeah, so just to, the, to be so misunderstood was really so that's so crazy making that some of these elders had probably observed your parenting more than this pastor. Mm-hmm. But the pastor said, don't know Kobe like I do. Yeah. And in the end, in the very, very end, when one of the things my husband was saying was there's domineering qualities here, that part of this guy's defense was to the elders with Colby there. He said, no one encourages Colby like I do. You know, you've seen me affirm him. So as a reminder, this was two years, two years of this pattern. Yeah. That's a really good frame to put on it because that's, Mm -hmm. that's kind of a long time. That wasn't a quickly something went wrong. We don't want to deal with it and our feelings are hurt or we're going to leave. Right. This is two years that you invested in trying to make this, mm-hmm. this work. And I would say this two-year period, I can't even imagine that tension of behind the scenes struggling, but also having a public ministry with your congregation, with friends and just members of the church that you're wanting to connect with and minister to. Yeah. Like how can you invite people into a community mm. when you yourselves are feeling so much mm. tension over that? I mean, in some ways, right. For us to have been inviting people to the church, if we'd at the same time been acknowledging the tension, that would have been really dishonest. And it wasn't like that. It didn't feel that way. And that switch of the the, the story where you thought it was going to be, mm-hmm. we're going to be close friends with the senior pastor's family. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not going to happen. So who are our people going to be? Yeah, definitely. I think there was a little bit of even consciously thinking, well, it is tough to work really closely with a good friend. Yeah. And when your good friend who you're working with is also technically your boss and working over you. It would be tough to figure out how this works. And when do I put the boss hat on? And when do I put the friend hat on? And and we knew it was his first time being senior pastors, like lead pastor. So there was also this com- whole, I think, overarching subtle narrative of, oh, he's just figuring things out. Of course, it's going to be tough. So little by little and Again, it's so tough because when we were trying to talk to the elders, they were asking us like, well, this did, did this happen every week? Like how often mm-hmm. are we talking? You know, they were trying to get evidence. And my husband just was, I don't, I don't remember. I don't know if it was every week, but the feeling and the experience was that every so often mm-hmm. there'd be these closed door, you know, I'm closing the door, I'm sitting you down intervention. So what that would normally look like would the next morning or sometime that week, an early morning meeting with my husband, lead pastor, and then elder. And that elder would be pretty silent. And lead pastor would just be kind of pummeling my husband with, here's what I was trying to communicate to you. Here's why we're concerned that you can't handle that feedback and you really need to be able to take it. And then elder would kind of just be nodding along and clearly being used as a pawn sometimes because my understanding was based on what my husband would say is sometimes senior pastor would, you know, look at this elder and go, 
we believe this, speaking for everybody. One of the things that many people since we've left have told us is one of the functions of the lead pastor doing things like that and being in certain meetings, like even church discipline meetings where he was there. The function of him being there is that he's sitting there so devastated and hurt and crushed visibly as the victim Mm -hmm. of all this that none of the congregants could raise their hand and ask any question. It just shut down that dialogue really quickly because who wants to make him feel bad? I would probably say it happened more than 10 or 15 times the whole time we were there. And one piece that's come to light that has, gosh, provided so much sanity for us is there is somebody who has sought us out and was able to witness that pattern actually and to say, oh, I always knew when lead pastor would go behind closed doors with Colby, I could always tell how that meeting had went because after the meeting, Colby would be looking really dejected and really beat down. Oh my goodness. What you're saying, Colby really matches up with when I look back and remember what I saw week after week. You're a therapist. If you were talking to someone that came to you and they were in a relationship with somebody that treated them like that. How would you label that relationship? If this was like a marriage relationship, it sounds like domestic violence to me. I read the book, Why Does He Do That? Which talks a lot about male violence in um, relationships and like that pain that is inflicted without even touching somebody. Is devastating. Yeah. And I can't even imagine, especially with the power dynamics at play mm. and your family's well being on the line, yeah. that your husband had to endure that for two years. Yeah. And be told constantly that he was the problem. Man. And you've told me that you, you grew in your ability to be supportive. Yeah. But that was hard, right? Like, what did that look like for you in your journey over that time? Yeah. Yeah. I, this is why you can't be your family member's therapist (laughs) because like you can't be objective and non-anxious and non-reactive. What I would, you know, to answer your question. Yeah. What I would say to a client and sometimes, I mean, a lot of it is an art, right? Cause I'm seeing where the client's at and not wanting to put that term on something unless it's helpful in the moment. And you can sort of sense for someone who's going, well, no, 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 you know, this was okay because of this to more be able to go, well, you're telling me it's okay, but here's what I'm seeing right now is that you're weeping and you're trembling. Yeah. Uh, But in the right moments to be able to give a person a word, like that's narcissistic that's yeah. manipulative. That's abusive. Yeah. Begins to bring forms from the void of the yeah. chaos, right? It's like an act of creation. Mm. I'm just that just was the image that came to me was like that God spoke and the things that were empty and chaotic and shapeless became formed. Yeah. And that we image him in naming things that are just that can't be pinned to the wall, right? We begin to firm up those things and it is so new and life-giving, right? So over this two-year period, mm-hmm. 
there came a point where you decide we got to do something. Mm-hmm. What was that moment? That was precipitated by a few events. One was that the lead pastor ended up needing a surgery for an old injury. And in that whole period, he had a little bit of a depressive episode. At that point, there were still three other elders other than the lead pastor. They all went to his home during, I can't remember if it was an elders meeting, but to me, kind of a routine meeting, he'd sort of gone off the grid for a few days. You know, he just stopped communicating. Mm -hmm. So people were sort of, well, what's going on? You know, giving him a lot of grace, went to his home, the three elders, plus my husband, plus the lead pastor. And he proceeded to just lay into them and tell them, maybe I need a new team of elders. You guys aren't being there for me. He compared himself to... Jesus while the disciples were sleeping in the garden and told them Mm -hmm. that they were doing that while he, in his hour of greatest need, he said these things to the elders. If my wife died, I don't know if you guys would be there for her, for my wife. Elders are understandably shocked. (laughs) They then have another meeting because the elders all got together and were all of them saying in various forms, that was not okay. He's not doing well, but he can't talk to us like that, really expressing deep pain. So then they plan to go over to the elder's house or to the senior pastor's house again to confront. Hey listeners, after listening to this episode, Kat and Kobe wanted to correct this part of their account. This follow-up meeting took place in the church lobby and not at the lead pastor's home. It's important to the Wilkins and to myself that we get the details right as much as that is possible. It is tricky to retell a story, but the intent here is to relay this account to the best of their ability. And I appreciate their integrity in wanting to represent this accurately. And the moment in which the one elder who then ruled off the elder board, understandably, was the one who put himself out there and was the first one to say, hey, what you said was not okay. The other two elders backed up and were like, whoa, He didn't really say that thing about Jesus and the disciples, or he didn't say it like that. They completely backtracked to where my husband was the only one who then was, you know, seeing that clearly this one elder was just being left out there on his own. And so my husband stepped in for him and said, no, we've all talked about this. That meeting was when he said to them, again, I'm paraphrasing here, right? Of course I wasn't there and we don't have it recorded, but senior pastor saying to all the elders, I hope what you all learned from this is that you need to be there for me more. Colby and this one other elder were completely left out in the cold. So then they're getting up and they're about to say goodnight. And the senior pastor goes, wait, we're not done. We need to talk about Colby's parenting. Also part of the story is that when all the elders were about to go to the lead pastor's house to sort of confront him, none of them wanted to. There was this sense of, oh gosh, do we have to, you know, it was hurtful. And my husband was the one that said, guys, he needs us right now and he's in pain and we need to go and be there for him. And so just thinking about that and how things got turned so quickly. So he went in thinking we are going to have a conversation. It's kind of hard, but we're going to show him by doing this that we really care and did not end up, didn't resolve. Yeah. And so what he said then was, we're not done. We need to talk about Colby's parenting. He then went straight to, and you know, this is a qualification for an elder. And so my husband said, he's told me this. He said, if you guys don't think I'm qualified to be an elder, 
tell me I will step down. And just the humility in that. Yeah. And he was, yeah. he meant it. And they all went around and thankfully all the elders one by one said, no, we've seen Colby parent and we think he's a great dad and we think he's qualified to be an elder. So then the meeting ended, but as they got up, the lead pastor said, talk about a knife twist. Well, I still have concerns. You guys don't know Colby like I do. There will be more conversations. Oh man. Ooh, I can see how that could be a a moment of, I don't think this is going to work very well. That's what he came home and said to me. And I panicked. There were a few moments. And he will say that after being yelled at after six, the first six months, he had that thought to himself of, I don't know if I can be here. I don't think he said that to me back then. But this at this event, which was October of 20, October of 2020. So it was like six months before Colby resigned. He came home and I, you know, you can just feel the weight. Like I remember just feeling like it was heavy and it was painful. And from my perspective, they've like what you said, they'd gone to care for this guy and to also give him some hard truth. And what ended up happening was that my husband was turned on maybe a week or so after that. We knew we couldn't carry on with the way things were. For whatever reason, however that came to be, we ended up having a sort of mediation meeting with my husband, me, lead pastor, and his wife. And then the elder who had been present when Colby was yelled at, and then a guy who was no longer an elder, but had been an elder before. They were sort of the mediators. And that was when we thought we were coming to the table to work out, hey, here's how we're hurt. Here's how you're hurt. Let's kind of all be accountable see, you know, see things we've missed, apologize and find a way for us to move forward. Cause we were starting at that point, we 100% thought maybe we can't be here, which ended up being weaponized against us because I told that in confidence to the guy who was no longer an elder anymore. And so at that meeting, it was clear that he'd gone back and told the senior pastor because the senior pastor just, it just was like the thing in his mind, he could not let go of. He was like, I still don't understand how you guys got to the point where you couldn't even be here. How did that happen? He just could not wrap his mind around how we were so devastated and so hurt. But at the end of the meeting, we both apologized to the lead pastor and his wife. It turned out that she'd been having some panic attacks and that the senior pastor had told the elders and no one had reached out to his wife. So that that was part of his narrative, right? Part of understandably. And my husband apologized to her and said, I've failed you as a friend. I've failed you as a pastor. I am so sorry that I knew that you were struggling and I didn't reach out. Like that was real. And I also said to her, because we'd been Marco Poloing daily and we brought them meals while he was recovering from surgery. And they're telling us we haven't been there for them. But what I remember saying to her was, it just makes me wonder if there's something about our friendship that isn't safe enough to where we didn't even know what was going on for you. Yeah. Giving her the benefit of the doubt. What is it about me where Mm -hmm. maybe you felt like you couldn't share these things? The very end of the meeting was when I said, okay, is it fair to say after apology, like, you know, we'd sincerely apologized, got to my remembrance, no apologies for anything from them. The end was where I was, I think in my mind, trying to create meaning from the void that I was noticing or the chaos. So I sort of in my own way was 
trying to wrap my hand around some stuff. And so to say, would it be fair to say that Colby needs to work on taking things less personally and lead pastor, you can work on not coming across quite as harsh. And he doubled down and he looked at me and he said, no, because I've only lost it on Colby once. And I already apologized and I was speechless. How does it feel to talk about it? My palms are sweating. My heart's racing. I want to cry. And I also am so angry at how our integrity was used against us and exploited again and again and again. To look back and know that we were just trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Always. If someone could just come up to you and remind you, Mm -hmm. you don't have to do everything perfectly to be worthy of being treated with care and respect. Yes. I I just hear this in Mm -hmm. survivors. Mm -hmm. They're like, I didn't do it perfect. That is just, that is part of being Mm -hmm. a person, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to be perfect to be worthy of somebody respecting you. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a one-off. It was a pattern of behavior, a pattern of treating you guys in a way that was just not right. Yeah. I don't see anything pastoral in that. And that is heartbreaking. Kat has had the opportunity to sit on both sides of grief. On one side, she's a counselor. And on the other, she is the one deep in grief herself and with her husband. Hearing her still grapple with that tension while still learning and growing gives me empathy and hope and encouragement. Her words, we image God in naming things. I love that. Diane Langberg says, To live here and not grieve is to be out of touch with reality. It is a failure to live in truth. And I wonder if that's part of the healing process. Grieving well tethers us to truth. Speaking of grieving well, in my conversation with Emily, she mentioned everyone's favorite WandaVision quote about grief. She also shares her thoughts on anger and fear and what she learned from her little sister while talking about the movie Inside Out. My go-to self-protection mode is anger. I just live in anger. I like to describe myself as like one of those light switches that doesn't really turn off. It just fades up and down. I'm always on. Like I'm always ready to go. It's just like, how lit am I at the current moment? Um, Anger is my default because it, it protects me. Right. I I was thinking about today earlier when I was thinking through stuff that I remember thinking when we were all watching WandaVision a year ago and everybody was like so blown away by that line, what is grief except for love persevering? And the thing that has been kind of stuck in my brain because I got told so many times like, well, you're just angry. Hmm. And that is true. Like I'm just angry a lot of the time. So much of the time, what that really is, is my anger is nothing but my grief trying to be protected. Like anger is nothing for me often, but grief self-protecting. Yeah. So you go from like that denial, that dissonance. And then usually for people, when we talk about cognitive dissonance, like usually we can court kind of self-resolve it. We can choose to ignore things or whatever, but there's this idea in Um, in psychology that what it takes for cognitive dissonance to get to that breaking point often is something external and traumatic. So, you know, you have those, those cracks that it wasn't necessarily that like 
I realized all this stuff, it was that all of a sudden I couldn't look away from yeah. it. And, and so, and that's traumatic, right? And so for that cognitive dissonance to, to finally start to break and resolve is traumatic and it's hurtful. And so for me, when that hurt starts to come up, then I build my wall of protection around myself yeah. and it's anger. Like I'm good at anger. Do you feel like you're more comfortable with anger than sad? Oh yeah, for sure. Cause it's safer for me. Anger is safer because I'm on the offense, right? If, mm -hmm. if I get hurt, it's because I'm hitting you, right? So, so anger is like, I'm in control yeah. of it. It's something you can um, do. And, but I, you know, I, I remember back when Inside Out came out and my sister and I were talking about it and she's significantly younger and we we're kind of talking about which character we are. And I was like, I'm anger. And she goes, Oh no. And I was like, what do you mean? Like I obviously am. And she was like, "Em, you let anger drive to protect fear. And I was like, first of all, rude. Second, like, since when are you wise and insightful little sister? But like, that is super true. I let anger drive to protect myself from getting hurt in those ways that I'm afraid of getting hurt or, or not being enough or running out of whatever. And, and so anger is safer. And so for me, I'm always fighting against anger. I think what's hard is recognizing Sometimes mm -hmm. anger is a destructive coping mechanism, and sometimes it's a tool to set about making things as they should be. Yeah, it is a reasonable response. And when do we move over from That's right. reasonable to destructive? I don't have that answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I need a therapist. Don't you think though, when you look at social media, we're mm -hmm. seeing, we see a lot of anger because it's a safe place where people, I would actually argue it's not necessarily a safe place, but it is a place. Yeah. I, for a lot of people, you can express it without the maybe dangers or the insecurities yeah. or even the consequences it feels like of real life. Yeah. Again, not a problem that I have. Like I'll say something on Twitter or wherever and they'll say, well, you wouldn't say that in real life. And incorrect I would and have yeah I think for some people and 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 like I said I mean yesterday like I was deep in some grief about something not related and then mm -hmm. someone someone said something and I just exploded in anger and then mm -hmm. had to delete a bunch of stuff I think it's easier for me sometimes to know those differences because it, it's just where I go. That's been so much of my work is to be able to tell the difference and also to recognize, I said the other day talking about uh, Encanto and Hamilton and Tick, Tick, Boom and how they're all the same movie that like in, in all of these things, like the greatest strength of the character and the greatest weakness of the character is all is the same thing. It's just different sides of the same coin. And and so yeah. recognizing that in me that like, I am not scared. Let's throw down. And so I get to be an advocate, you know? I get to say things that maybe other mm -hmm. people would not say. And so they can hear that and be heard. But also I yeah. have to know, am I protecting myself with this what is strong for me? from what I am afraid to feel. 
that is hard and sad. That's why Mm. lament has been such a gift to me because being sad and, and feeling that grief, that doesn't mean that I don't get to still have that fire. Like I said, the, the justice and lament are married together. And so I get to put the two of them together. And I think for me, that has been what has helped me not be, I mean, and I'm, I'm not perfect at it by any means. I get myself into trouble a lot. But what has helped me is to make myself feel grief first and then I can use that tool of anger because I've filtered it through my grief instead of building a wall of anger around the grief so that I don't have to deal with it all the way. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before or if it's just in real life. If you've ever been with somebody who tells a joke and people don't really laugh at it or they don't really pay attention to it mm-hmm. and they tell it again later, it's because they want someone to hear them. Mm-hmm. They didn't think anybody actually heard them. And I think the same is true about when people express pain mm-hmm. and as as it looks like anger, manifests as anger is that they don't feel heard yet. Mm-hmm. Somebody's not paying attention. Yeah, you know, Maybe it's the person they want to pay attention that isn't paying attention or maybe they feel like no one is paying attention. They're just going to keep saying it until they feel like people are, have heard them. Yeah. I sometimes wonder if our church environments just aren't super comfortable with anger, aren't super comfortable with sadness even. Yeah. Yeah. And so they really haven't been able to jump over that. Right. Super intense negative yeah. feelings for yeah. but for lack of a better word. I do think actually that our white evangelical world is comfortable with anger, but only mm-hmm. anger that is directed outside of us, never anger that is self-reflective. And so it's fine to be angry at the culture, right? But it's it's a different story when we turn that on ourselves and say, here is what is wrong. What we're uncomfortable with is not anger. What we're uncomfortable with is acknowledging wrongness within our wall that we've I think that the evangelical church, the white evangelical church has done a a lot of what I tend to do, which is we've built this wall of protection of anger flowing out of us to protect us from the broken things inside of us. Mm. Because if we're directing all of our energy, all of our righteous energy, all of our prophetic energy outward through this anger, we don't have anything left to look at ourselves inside. And and I've got to tell you, that's so much harder. But when we stop doing that and we turn and look at ourselves, what we get to do then is we get to hear and see because we're not so busy throwing punches, right? And so we can look into the culture and instead of being mad at it, we can look at them like Jesus looks on Jerusalem and is broken on behalf of them. And then we get that grief that's born out of love, not that anger mm-hmm. that's born out of self-protection. And so then we have the ability to have that purposeful fuel instead of that destructive random hitting. That is a really fascinating observation that it's not so much the anger, but that where the anger is directed at, that anger feels like it's threatening some sort of 
identity that I have or community that I have. Mm -hmm. If you are angry about something that I am a part of, a group I identify with, a church I identify with, a political party I identify with, it Mm -hmm. feels like an attack. And I don't know what to do about it. Was it my fault? You know, you could feel defensive and I didn't do this to you. I'm here in Tennessee minding my own business. I think that's why I work really hard. For example, like for the SBC, I don't know what my future is with SBC. I do know I don't look at it like I did when I was 20 or even 30 for that matter. I just see things that I didn't see before and I can't keep going pretending that I don't see them. So either we have a real self-reflection with real repentance or I have to move on. But whatever that looks like for me, I'm always going to say we, not they. Because it is we, and it's so much easier to say they. But saying we is is not just true, because the Bible makes it really clear that we are accountable and responsible to God for the things that we do, even when we don't do them individually. That's why we have Josiah, who was a child, doing sacrifices and repenting and having a national day of mourning for the sins of people that happened before he was born. That is a biblical concept. And also, I have the Miss SBC sash and crown, right? Is there one literally? Uh, No, but... (laughs) Okay. If there was, you would have earned it. That's right. And so it's we. Not only was I formed by it, but I formed other people in that. I benefited from it, right? It's interwoven positively into me as much as it is negatively. If I want to have those benefits, then I have to also have accountability for those other things as well, whether I did them or not. And so this idea of we is first of all accurate, but it's also incarnational. And I think that's a thing that we really miss when when we say like, well, this isn't my responsibility. We are missing an opportunity to be incarnational, to be like Jesus, to step into something that is not our problem and to put responsibility and accountability and justice making on ourselves. Mm-hmm. For the sake of other people, like that is incarnational Christ work. And so to say we is to say, put this burden on me and I will do the work of making it right. And so even if I end up leaving the SBC, which I don't, I don't know what that's going to look like, I'm always going to say we until these things are resolved because I ha- I have decided that that is going to be an incarnational path that I walk for the sake of my sisters who are survivors, for Mm -hmm. the sake of my black and brown brothers, for the sake of people who've gone before me who I don't even know their names and had nothing to do with it. And so this idea of you can't tell me what to do, you can't make me feel bad for this Mm -hmm. is it's such an anemic Christology because what Jesus does is he steps into our lament and makes it his own and then makes it right. And so if we're going yeah. to be the people who are not angrily shouting at our culture, but who step into their lament and put it on ourselves and then go about making it right where the cost is on us, not on them, so that they can know the goodness and righteousness of God. What would that even look like? I don't know, but that's what I want to do.
After the death of his wife, C.S. Lewis wrote A Grief Observed. I read it as I was preparing for this season, and I wrote down this quote, No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. While fear is not officially a part of the Kubler-Ross grief cycle, I see fear all over grief. And I especially see it behind the anger response. Experiencing loss brings about feelings of anxiety. Dr. Langberg says that fear makes us feel small. Most of us don't want to feel small and weak. And anger is an easy alternative. It feels stronger. It makes us seem bigger. There is no one right emotion to feel. We've seen that in looking at denial and anger. And as you process this today, and maybe even this week, if your grief experience has you feeling things that make you uncomfortable, instead of asking, how can I stop feeling this way? Consider asking yourself, why do I feel this? And where does it come from? This podcast is made possible by support from my Patreon community. For a few dollars a month, they help underwrite the costs of this podcast. And in return, they get a few perks. One of those perks is that my sustainer level supporters have access to bonus content. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, check out the details at patreon.com slash untangled faith. And if you loved this episode, share it with a friend. That's one of the best ways you can support this show. You can find show notes at untangledfaithpodcast.com. And you can find me on Instagram and Facebook as Untangled Faith. And I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. Thanks for listening. I'll meet you back here next week where we catch up again with Kat and Emily, and we talk about bargaining. Bargaining.